Hello, I'm Peter Laws, the host of the hit podcast Frightful, which offers very scary true stories. But as I research that show, I keep finding other true tales that aren't so terrifying and yet are fascinating and often deeply moving. That's why I launched a second podcast called Our Curious Past, telling forgotten incidents from history told in immersive audio with music, sound effects, and on-location recording. For example, you can join me on location in an underground nuclear bunker in England as I learned how Britain prepared for the potential of war in the 1980s. I loved recording on location in Transylvania to uncover the history of this beautiful and spooky land beyond the forest. And I was particularly touched by the big response to my episode on the Nazi massacre of urhador Suglin, an entire French village that was invaded by the Nazis in 1944. To be honest, it was sometimes hard to narrate that without breaking into tears. So why not join me, Peter Laws, by searching our curious past in podcast apps? Because, you know, sometimes it's the unique moments from another person's yesterday that helps us understand ourselves today. The sun is setting in a small desert town in the southwest. The town straddles the border between the United States and Mexico in such a way that the people who live there feel like they belong to both countries. Most people in the town speak both Spanish and English and have family that lives both further north into the U.S. and further south into Mexico. For them, the border isn't so much a thing that divides two places, but rather a thing that's in the middle of one place home. A girl and her dog are walking south, the sun off behind their right shoulders as it sinks in the west. The temperature will start to drop soon, and they are taking the path down to check on the family's livestock before heading back up to the house to watch a movie. The girl makes sure that the water trough is full, and wonders if there'll be a film of ice to crack off in the morning. She double-checks the latch on the gate. All of a sudden, her dog freezes and sniffs, circles, and whines at the air. Maybe there's a coyote nearby, the girl thinks. But the gate and the fence are strong and tall. She pats her dog, who shakes off the jitters, and they walk back to the house. Later, as the dark settles in for the night and the TV glows inside the house, something watches the family, settled on their couch together, laughing at their movie. Something watches the family for a while, waiting, and then slinks out of the shadows down that same path. But it is no coyote. In the morning, before anyone in the family has stirred, the sun peeks over the horizon onto the animals in their pen, only to reveal that every single one of them has been completely drained of blood. But who or what could have done such a thing? And how? I'm Elise Parisian, and today we are going to talk about the creature that would potentially be blamed for this terrible crime, the chupacabra today on Unspookable. I think a chupacabra is a creepy cat drinking goat milk. I mean, goat blood. A chupacabra is a goat sucker. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it eats animals, 
possibly. <laughs> um, it eats animals and sucks the life out of them. If you're anything like I once was, you may be saying to yourself, the chupa what now? The chupacabra. Say it three times fast. Chupacabra, chupacabra, chupacabra. Of course, as some of you may be thinking, the pronunciation I'm using is very anglicized, or made to sound more like an English word than its pronunciation in Spanish. Chupacabra is a Spanish word, and it comes from the words chupar, to suck, and cabra, goat. That's right, this creature's name in English would be goat sucker, which you have to admit is kind of funny. To those goats in that girl's pasture, though, probably not so funny. So what is a chupacabra? Is it real? Does it really drink animal blood? To learn about this creature, let's go back to the beginning. A beginning which actually wasn't so very long ago. Many sources will tell you that the first documented chupacabra sighting was on the island of Puerto Rico in 1995. Puerto Rico is an island of over 3 million people, located about 1,150 miles off the southeastern tip of Florida. Puerto Rico has been a territory of the U.S. since 1898, meaning that although Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, they don't have representation in our government. Puerto Rico is technically the oldest colony in the world. Just off center of the island, a little to the east, are two towns, Orocovis and Morovis. In March 1995, farm animals died there under mysterious circumstances, with tooth-like puncture wounds found on their bodies. Eyewitnesses also claimed that the animals weren't just bitten. They were drained completely of blood. For the next few months, people whispered about the apparent vampire attacks on animals that were going on in neighboring towns, sometimes miles away. Then one day, a woman named Madeline Tolentino in the town of Canobanas, further to the east and towards the capital of San Juan, looked out her window and spotted a creature. It could have been part reptile, or a dog, or even an alien. Soon after the creature's sighting, others started to see it. It felt like there had to be more than one for all the ground it would have to have covered in order to be seen in so many places in quick succession. Like Madeline, many people described what they saw as a reptile-like creature, but humanoid in appearance, with scaly greenish or grayish skin that walked on four legs, but could also kind of hop on two like a kangaroo, and might be the size of a small bear at around four feet tall. Not long after these initial sightings, comedian Silverio Perez began telling people the name he coined for the creature, Chupacabra. To be fair, it can't be proven who exactly said the name first. Some stories even claim that the name was used decades earlier, and that the creature was first seen in the 1960s or 70s. But regardless of who said it first, there's something powerful about a name, right? Before the creature had a sighting or a name, people took the teeth marks in the dead animals as signs for a lot of things. Maybe it was coyotes or wild dogs. Maybe some other animal with sharp teeth. Maybe if you were inclined to believe in such things, you could even think that it was a regular, old-fashioned, human-type vampire. But just like the way the name Dracula has a bit more power to it than just regular old vampire, the name Chupacabra all of the sudden means more than just saying the thing that attacked those animals. All of a sudden, 
it becomes more real. And that's part of what helped the tale spread. More on that when we get back. Chupacabra is a funny name, but it's definitely not a vampire. Like, why would a vampire kill farm animals? Uh, farm animals probably don't even taste that good. Like, they could just go to the grocery store and, like, ask someone for meat and eat it. <laughs> I think it's probably just, like, a coyote or something, or, like, a wild dog just biting animals because it can. At this point, you might be wondering, are they saying this thing is real or not? But that's the tricky part about any of our creatures and beasts on this season, and honestly, most of what we talk about on Unspookable. It depends who you ask. In the case of the chupacabra, as soon as it had a name, its power grew. Different but related descriptions said it was chameleon-like, with purple, brown, and yellow pigmentation, a crest on its back, wings, three-fingered hands, or elongated red eyes, fangs, and a shaven head, and even that it could run like a gazelle. A few eyewitnesses also insisted that the chupacabra could emit beams of light from its eyes, and that it could understand when spoken to in Spanish. In the year right after the first confirmed sighting, many Puerto Ricans who believed in the creature connected it to legends and lore of other mysterious creatures, with some saying that the chupacabra was one of a group of extraterrestrial creatures come down to study the blood of Earth's inhabitants, or that, like a werewolf, the chupacabra could only be killed using a silver bullet. It seemed that there were so many different descriptions, theories, and connections circulating that almost all of them had at least a few people saying that they were true, no matter how outlandish. There were reasons for people to fear a creature attacking farm animals, regardless of what or who was doing the attacking. Many of us living in cities, or those of us who purchase all of our food from a store, don't have experience with farm animals and how crucial they are to some families' livelihoods. The animals that died were still a great loss. Rumors and stories passed around quickly because of their sensationalism, yes, but also because people really needed to understand what was happening to their animals. Of course, it wasn't just Puerto Ricans who had farm animals that may be vulnerable to attack. Soon, deaths of goats, sheep, pigs, and cows in parts of Mexico, Chile, Brazil, and the United States were blamed on the chupacabra. In the Mexican state of Jalisco, a wave of chupacabra panic hit in May of 1996, with people reporting dead animals with two tooth marks about a third of an inch across in the neck and drained of blood. In May of 1999, in Sorocaba, Brazil, dead pigs were attributed to the chupacabra, and in April of 2000, the Chilean city of Calama reported at least 300 animals dead, with some of them drained of blood. One of the strangest reports came from a boy outside of Tucson, Arizona, in the U.S. The boy's father, Jose Espinoza, said his son saw a chupacabra come into the family's home, slam the door, and come to sit on the boy's bed. The creature had a red nose, a beak, and was about three feet tall. In many of these places, officials and investigators were quick to try to encourage the public to look at the facts. After all, 
livestock were attacked and killed fairly frequently by average, everyday predators like coyotes or cougars or wolves, depending on where the victims lived. But if these livestock were killed by regular animals, as many people believed, why were witnesses saying they saw reptilian-looking creatures? One possible explanation for sightings in the U.S. and Mexico could be coyotes that were infected with the parasite Sarcoptes scabii, which would cause them to lose most of their hair, have thick, dry patches of skin, and a strange odor. Other predator mammals can also get various kinds of parasites and mange that could explain their appearance. These animals would be too weak from illness to hunt for deer, rabbits, or other prey, and would have likely tried for the easier target of penned livestock. But why wouldn't those predators have eaten the prey? And what about the blood factor? There could be an explanation for that too. The predator could have been too weakened to fully kill its prey, leaving it to die of its wounds. Then, in death, a natural process occurs where the blood settles to the lowest point in the body after the heart stops beating. This could make it seem like the animal had no blood in it, at least on the surface. So, even if we can attribute a lot of the sightings and livestock killings to animals that we know exist, why did all of these different descriptions keep popping up? And why did belief in the chupacabra travel over 3,000 miles from Puerto Rico and the Caribbean Sea to Chile on the southwest coast of South America? Is there a way to understand a true origin for the chupacabra? We'll toss around some theories in just a sec. A conspiracy theory is when someone has a secret plan that's either real or fake about something like if there are aliens at Area 51 or not. Because I know a lot of people want to go there and see, like, hey, is there aliens? My conspiracy about how the chupacabra is not real, I don't think that it's real personally, that it could have just been, like, it could be a person going around killing them as kind of like a joke. Like how in Home Alone, the burglars said they were going to leave their mark by leaving the water on in every house that they burgled from. Is that a word? Burgled? <laughs> um, and stole the stuff from. So that would be leaving their mark as so someone could possibly find out. So they know that e each one of those houses was that house that they were the ones responsible for it. If some person were to do that, then they could just be leaving their mark and saying, I kill animals, which is not a very good thing to be known by. If you remember our episode on vampires from last season, you might see some parallels between vampire hysteria and chupacabra panic. The chupacabra is, after all, a vampire in its own right. It may not be undead in the same way that a figure like Dracula is, where a vampire is created from a human, but the claim about the chupacabra is still that it feeds on blood to survive. Just like our human-adjacent vampires, it is also believed to use the cover of darkness to find its victims. The other important parallel is that, like, say, vampires in the northeastern United States in the 19th century, chupacabras in the 20th century were used as a scapegoat for unexplained death and destruction. Unlike the vampires of New England in the 1800s, the chupacabra in the late 1990s had some modern technology on its side to help it become more prolific. In just a few short years, people all across Latin America and the U.S. had heard of the chupacabra because of modern newspapers, 
especially tabloids that print colorful photos and headlines meant to scare and excite people about the unknown, and the increase in global communication by new means like the internet. Yeah, that's right. The internet was still fairly new to many people in 1995. People in the 1990s shared information so much faster than in the 1890s. Can you imagine if the New Englanders who blamed tuberculosis deaths on vampires had been able to jump on their favorite website and write about it? There may have been vampire panic all across the U.S., not just in New England. In some ways, the chupacabra represents a return to vampire legends of the pre-Dracula variety. Before we all imagined vampires as former humans, from Count Dracula to Edward Cullen in Twilight, ancient humans imagined all forms of creatures that could suck the life force from humans, often in the form of blood. This seems to be an innate and primal fear, to be drained of life. The chupacabra attacking people's livelihoods, even if it wasn't attacking people themselves, fits in with that fear and reminds us that common human fears can take different imaginative forms. Maybe some of us are afraid of a creature that's more human. Maybe some of us are afraid of a creature that looks like a reptile, or alien, or hairless wild dog. It's important to note that in many cases where tracks were found near the sites of dead animals, analysis of the prints frequently led to identifying dogs, coyotes, or other mammals as the culprits. It's possible that the excitement around a supernatural culprit, or disbelief in official explanations for the cause, meant that people locally affected by the livestock killings continued to spread information about the chupacabra instead of more likely scenarios. There's one more aspect of the chupacabra's origin that may be worth digging into, and it has intrigued investigators and researchers studying the phenomenon. Is there a reason that it started in Puerto Rico and traveled across Latin American countries specifically? One possible cultural theory relates to something we mentioned in the beginning. The fact that Puerto Rico is technically a colony of the United States. For a time, one common rumor about the chupacabra's origin was that the U.S. government was either creating it in a lab and unleashing it on the local population, or that the chupacabra itself was an extraterrestrial species that escaped from U.S. government labs. You might be thinking, but why would people think that the U.S. would be responsible for something like that? It sounds fantastical, and impossible for many reasons. But even putting aside whether such a creature could be created, or be from outer space, doesn't it sound equally fictional that the U.S. government would do that? The circumstances surrounding this question are extremely complex. It would take us more than a whole podcast to even begin to talk about the relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, or the U.S. and various Latin American countries. What we can say for sure is that it's not completely unfounded for people in those regions to be mistrustful of the U.S. government. For decades, the U.S. government has gotten themselves involved with the politics of many countries that are our neighbors to the South. Some people would say that's a good thing, that those countries needed the U.S. to step in. But some would say that the U.S. has done more harm than good in many places. Again, these are complicated issues. Their connection to the chupacabra is simply this. Fears, and stories about those fears, don't come from nowhere. They come out of an intricate web of circumstances, like culture, history, politics, climate, and geography. What are the circumstances that have led to some of your fears? 
Is it where you lived? The type of movies you saw? The landscape that you saw out your window? The story from the beginning of this episode, of the girl and her dog and the chupacabra. Even if you don't believe that the chupacabra part can exist, the rest of it absolutely can. That girl and her dog are unique individuals, shaped by their environments, just like you. And although it can be confusing, or even sometimes scary, one of the greatest things about being human is that not only do we have beliefs that we hold very strongly, we also have the capacity to ask, why do I believe what I believe? What has made me who I am? And who do I want to be? Thanks for listening to Unspookable. I'm your host, Elise Parisian. This episode was written by Eleanor Riley Condit, produced and edited by Nate Dufort. Our theme song and additional music composed by Jesse Case. Our logo was created by Natalie Kewen, with episode artwork by Brianna Jacoby. Special thanks this week to our guests Blythe, Olivia, and Al. If you're interested in learning more about Puerto Rico while hearing some great family-friendly audio fiction, check out the podcast Time Storm by Cocotazo Media. Time Storm follows the time-traveling Ventura twins on a mission to preserve their Puerto Rican heritage. We encourage you to check it out at www.cocotazomedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Unspookable is part of the Soundsington Audio Network, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.